0: The Humanist Being presents when Humanists attack.
1: Audrey Hepburn sits down in the Chinese restaurant, diamonds in her. Waiters are levitating backwards Orders ready, music in the air
0: By the Preoccupied Pipers, vocal by Barbara West, and she's our guest this time round on When Humanists Attack. My name is Roger Kibblesmith, and I'm ecstatic to be able to bring to your ears the conversation Barbara and I had a while back, in which she unspooled quite a lot of her life narrative. Barbara is a poet dynamic performer, as you can hear, with a spoken word style that's been called simultaneously stand-up comic and stand-up meditation. Her book of poetry and prose is called And I Felt the Simple Sweetness of Me, pub date 2017, Cold River Press. Barbara has made her living as a nurse for many years. She's done Midwifery, she's done hospice care, she's done ER and wound ostomy care, she's raised a healthy child as a single mother, and she's simply one of the most brilliant and captivating human beings I've had the good fortune to know on this earth. So, uh, with uh, Vododio and Scooby-Doo, welcome Barbara to Word Humanists Attack! (laughs) Woo!
1: so thrilled to be here. (laughs) I just can't tell you how happy that show title makes me.
0: Really? Tell me about that.
1: Well, and I guess it actually has to do with some of the things I was thinking of reading today. Um, You know, we're all trying to be good and nice and like, for example, not harm other people or not Mm. attack other people. But um, Mm. so to have a show that's titled When Humanists Attack... I just can't tell you what a relief that is to me because see. Um, it's the
0: transgressive element that relieves you.
1: Well, it's, it's already making room for me to make a lot of mistakes here. And right. um, I, I need that room.
0: <laughs> well, so so, you know, I want to know everything about you. And uh, from the beginning of your life, I, I'd like to start <laughs> with your birth. You know, if you don't mind, where where were you born? What do you know about your mother's gave birthday?
1: Well, um, I mean, I'll just go back I am the product of a 300 year plus uh, pacifist Anabaptist tradition. Huh. And, and so I think that's why the title when humanist attack is particularly freeing for me, because we've been trying to be pacifist for at least 300 years and we're not always the greatest at it.
0: But, but were you also trying to be humanist, you know? What-
1: well, we were trying to believe that people are good and we were trying to support People in being their best selves and not yeah. attack them, and that's yeah, really yeah, hard to yeah. do. It turns out.
0: What specifically is this strain?
1: This is Church of the Brethren. I see. This is both of my grandfathers were ministers in this church. My aunt and uncle are are still ministers in this church, and uh, but I was never baptized. We never lived in a Brethren town, and I was actually uh-huh. trying to arrange to be baptized at age thirteen or fourteen. Oh, really? But there happened to be a sign on the wall of a youth room that I happened to visit that said, Jesus is the only way. And I was like, uh, ah, not gonna be able to join that even if it's just somebody accidentally left a sign on the wall. So that was the end of that.
0: Just just because of multiplicity of ways you already knew. You know? <laughs> yeah, I just
1: I just happened to know that there were at least a couple other ways. And, <laughs> and I was wanting to join this one, but then I realized, you know, those other ways that I knew weren't busy saying they were the only way. And so I couldn't join up with a way that was saying it was the only way, even if it's just a sign that some wacko happened to post on the youth room wall. And I was like, mom, I can't join this church. And she said, well, you know, some wacko conservative just put that on the wall. But we don't really think that. I'm like, yeah, but somebody else, everybody else let the sign stay up on the wall.
0: (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So this was both sides of your family.
1: Yeah, both sides of my family. I'm I'm pure blood. I mean, all four of my grandparents spent their lives working for peace and like for the good of humanity. I see. And that's basically what my mother and father ended up doing in their own ways. And it's basically what I'm trying to do, but I have kind of given up on the large scale. Not that I'm not still trying to vote the right direction or send some money the right way or support friends like you who are doing actual activist work, but the large scale work, is such a challenge that I'm working on personal scale first and first may mean this lifetime and the next li- lifetime if we believe in lifetimes which I'm I'm not don't necessarily do but I like the idea because it gives me some slack I'm looking for slack I guess that's that's the theme here of, of both my appreciations so far today
0: and they're very cogent so <laughs> uh, one thing I also know about your youth is that you moved around an awful lot I mean did you sort yeah. of feel like uh indiana was the main place you lived
1: well yeah so that's the thing i was i was born in boston and um and just to get back to my birth my mother credits her the natural childbirth class she ended up in and preparing the you know as a 21 year old preparing for my birth and then her um her fight to have some autonomy during the birth process and then to nurse me later on was how she became a feminist you know so i I i take some credit for that But yeah, I was born in Boston, I grew up in Indiana, and then I moved here to Davis, California when I was in high school. And it's funny how California adopts you quickly, but yet, you know, they say where you lived until you were the age of five kind of claims you in a certain way, and I certainly feel that. Uh, My sister and I were able to visit Bloomington, Indiana, and Indianapolis, where we grew up uh, last October, and it was a very important, intense experience for us. This thing I've heard about being imprinted by age five is the landscape itself imprints on you. And we were just like practically in tears, just like walking around, looking at trees, you know, the certain kinds of trees, the certain places, the way the trees had grown in this one park, uh, walking through the woods. Um, it was just like food for us, you know? Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, um, it was an interesting thing for me and my sister. Even though we're two years apart, one therapist, my therapist, uh, diagnosed us as undifferentiated twins because we we did move around a lot as children, and and actually I took a year off from school, and she skipped year, so we actually graduated from college the same weekend. So we kind of almost became the same age. And oh wow! And I I my sister seems much more mature than me now. And it's funny, she actually has gray hair and my hair is not quite as gray. So people think she's older than me now. And that was always her dream as a little sister to catch up. And I think she, she did. And she did pass (laughs) me, but the interesting thing is that, um, apparently our memory is highly specialized. We have a few overlapping memories, but most of our memories from our childhood, are completely different. So it was like, she remembered geographically where everything was in the town, but I could remember the names of who lived there or she could walk to our daycare, the block, but then when she got there, didn't recognize the building but I could recognize the slope of the backyard and the way the front door opened. So it's as if we um, delegated parts of our memory and a friend actually, um, Jed Bell, who says to say hello to you, by the way, and it's in one of these stories that I might read uh, later. Jed. Jed, Jed said, well, yes, certainly there was efficiency in delegating different parts of our memories. You know, So one was in charge of a certain kind of memory and one the other, but Jed said also there was perhaps safety. The fact that neither of us had the whole memory kept us safe from some of the pain that was there. So we we walked around and cried a lot.
0: <laughs> Goodness me. All right, well, so uh, I mean, what do you yeah. know about your your adolescence by that time you were in Davis, California?
1: Yeah. Well, the, the last part of it, I guess um, I was, I turned 16 the summer and we moved out here and and that, and California has a way of adopting you. I mean, it's within a year, we felt like we were from California, even though we still had this longing to go back to Indiana. And then it turns out, you know, this is where I've settled. I raised my son here and I lived in one town here for 24 years, mostly until, until right now. And that is just so bizarre because i other than being in grad school, I'd never lived in one town more than two years continuously. And a lot of that time was joint custody time between parents. So it is bizarre to think that I've been in this house. Um, I've been in this actual house since 2001. And that's uh, shocking to me. And there's something to be said for it. I recommend it, you know, and, and for my son, having grown up with people that knew him as a baby and getting to see people grow up, I'd actually had never seen boys go through puberty. I mean, I'd, I'd known boys, you know, like in elementary school and junior high, but then I went to three different high schools. And so when my son and his friends were growing up, it was just amazing to watch the physical things of boys going through puberty. I'd never had seen that because I had moved so much.
0: Well, And I guess the only long-term relationships you would have had would have been with your nuclear family. So, you know, yeah, and I,
1: I had cousins, but you know, we, we only saw them every few years, pretty distant. So it's just, yeah. And it's just, that, that it's another know, dimension
0: of why you see why you're so close with your sister, I assume. You know?
1: Exactly, exactly. And, and um, it's just so interesting having you know, some of the na- same neighbors for the past 25 years and, and just kind of knowing people through thick and thin. I, I'm not good at long term relationships, whether they're romantic or familial or personal in any way. Although Roger, we've been friends for a very long time. So I'm grateful for that. It's true, <laughs> we're, we're over 30 years now. So that's that's yes. awesome. And that's very yes. rare for me.
0: Okay. And so well, it's just I, been I awesome. Mean, having, special for anyone. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. But having neighbors here, you know, that I've known for, for so long, and we haven't always been on good terms, but we just still know each other. And that's a, a really amazing gift. It wasn't anything I expected. It is.
0: So for listeners, Barbara and I met uh, in college, uh, I believe for me, it was the day that I arrived uh, at college and um huh. you know uh a, a few things that i remember from your uh, college years aside from uh, uh doing a pair of duets together in the production of the fantastics was some first some trouble with your father uh or, or early on like right away yeah uh then later you coming out as 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 bi yeah and then, you know, that you started out uh, unclear about your career interests like me, sort of sort of literature type uh, undecideds. Yeah. Uh, but toward the end, you announced you had a chosen voc- vocation and I felt very proud of you. You were a midwife. <laughs> and then which which I never
1: actually did, but, but at least I, I chose that.
0: Yes. And you went into Yale's program for, for nurse midwifery what are you remembering?
1: I'm just kind of trying to do some math, which is not my fourth year, but we, we've known each other like almost 36 years now, like 35 and a half years. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I particularly remember you and your sense of pitch, helping me learn my part in the fantastics without which I would not mm-hmm. have been able to perform those duets. So I'm still eternally grateful. And I, I keep wishing that my current girlfriend had that level of patience with me hitting wrong notes and then very gently and kindly uh, correcting me over and over, which, um, know I, yeah, I, I mean,
0: it's a great bonding technique. It is. I mean, the, the feelings of being that age and, and in that place, that place also had, yeah. you know, it's imprint, not so much geographical, but because mm-hmm. of the, the bizarre placement of all of these people, our age.
1: <laughs> well, it was, <laughs> it, it was just such a relief to arrive there you know, to be surrounded by people who loved learning. It was just so nice to not be humiliated for that anymore. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, later on, I took classes at, um, you know, public university, just in between during my year off in college. And and when somebody raised their hand in class, the only question they asked was, is this going to be on the test? And I, it just, it hurt me, you know, and, and so you know, being together with you in college, there was a sense of common purpose that we were, we were all helping each other learn. And that's such a gift. And I, I haven't been in that environment that many other times in my life. I actually feel it now in the little Mennonite uh, fellowship I'm going to up in Corvallis, but um, I have mistakenly applied that in many other parts of my life, assuming we were all trying to learn together. And, and that was, a mistake. And I've, I've, I've offended a lot of people and, and paid some heavy prices for making that wrong assumption in many other environments.
0: How sad, you know, (laughs) it seems like a very, uh, uh, you know, good, positive, you know, humanistic approach to whatever community one is in, you know, certainly good hearted.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's certainly, I have been in some environments where that was true. I mean, there's certain parts of my hospice, uh, work where, there really was a sense of we're all trying to learn together. And, you know, there's, there has been pockets of it here and there, but I have um, mistakenly assumed that much more broadly than I should have.
0: Well, so how did it come about that you decided this was your next step, the, the nurse midwife thing and what happened after that?
1: <laughs> well, I had, I was very interested in psychology and I was thinking about psychology or psychiatry until I took intro psych and it was all about abnormal psych, and I was just interested in the ordinary, screwed up people that we are, and that's who I wanted to learn about. So I studied literature because there was a lot of information about us in there. It, it seemed to right, me, right,
0: right. That's that's the uh, the humanistic strain in psychology, but it's not as well developed as the social science strain. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And then, um, and then I ended up uh, being pre med. I well, and and actually, and that was funny because I was always afraid of hospitals, but. Um, I had an an infant cousin who was very sick and had surgery during the Christmas of my sophomore year. And we spent a lot of that Christmas in the UCSF uh, Children's Hospital. And I was just so inspired by the people there and the care he got and singing Christmas carols in the hallway that I decided I, I could go to med school and become a doctor. So that was my path until I took that year off and went to Kentucky and I got to work alongside obstetricians and midwives. And I saw kind of similar to the psychology issue that the obstetricians were only dealing with the abnormal and that normal birth was what the midwives and nurses were, were doing the, you know, helping women have babies. Um, Doctors weren't given the time to, to be with women. And that's what midwife means is with woman. And that was what I wanted to do. So I that's how I ended up there
0: right I mean I I remember uh, when my child was born uh, we were trying to have uh, midwife support and uh, they worked with one doctor who we ended up having to deal with extensively but he wasn't used to dealing with people extensively I thought of him as you know like the the closer relief pitcher (laughs)
1: Well, exactly. And I I appreciate those doctors who are willing to support midwives. And and during that time in Kentucky, it was the frontier nursing service. Um, I struggled with that because I, there was a need for obstetricians who would play that supportive role for midwives. And I, I really felt compelled to go ahead and do that. I knew I could, could do that, but it wasn't how I wanted to spend my time. I wanted to be in the game all along and not just the closer. And so Um, even though I'm so grateful to those men and women who are willing to play that role, it wasn't what I wanted to do.
0: I mean, is this about the distinction between, uh, nurse midwives and lay midwives? I mean, that's kind of another,
1: another, you know, kind of further parallel on the whole thing. I mean, I had thought my training as a nurse midwife would be relevant to a home birth practice. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't very much, I ended up doing a home birth apprenticeship during, um, my last semester or two of my nurse midwifery training and the training I got from the home birth midwives was the training I was really wanting. And not mm-hmm. that I don't appreciate all that I learned during, during my nurse midwifery training, the main thing of which being learning the power of institutions and how futile it is to be an individual trying to go against them. And that's a real important lesson that I'm very slow at learning, <laughs> but um
0: Right. Well, I mean, institutions are not in favor of of, of, what was it at the beginning? Peace, you know, any, (laughs) any, you know, or any of the related values, it seems.
1: Uh, Institutions are in favor of continuing to exist. Like organisms.
0: Yeah, Yeah,
1: right there. Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't I'm I'm particularly not skilled at interfacing with them. But what I learned from the home birth midwives was exactly what I had wanted to learn. And I, I got to do a wonderful year's apprenticeship with them afterwards. And then I came to California expecting to continue that, but um, ended up, you know, again, having difficult relationships with midwives out here. It was a very different scene because the midwives in California had been actively persecuted by the California Medical Association, like taken away wow. in handcuffs, like having their children threatened to put in foster care and stuff. And so,
0: oh, I see this was recent history
1: well, that was, it was 1994. Mm -hmm. And so the Connecticut home birth scene that I trained in was completely underground. It was so small that there was no backlash, you know? And so we were very free with what we did and we weren't transporting women to the hospital at the drop of a dime, you know? Um, And so the California scene was what's that word when you're like entrenched or embattled, you know? Yeah. And it was so, and there weren't very many midwives, who had much uh, longevity. The burnout rate was so high. And then the relationship that I was in fell apart and I wanted to have my own kid. And I knew I couldn't be a home birth midwife and be an only parent at the same time. So, so I found a great midwife who was, had tons of experience and uh, I had a great home birth myself. And that was the result of my midwifery training.
0: <laughs> hey, <laughs> right. Uh, well, it sounds like a, uh, you know, a high price to pay, but a good uh, thing to, uh, to receive for that (laughs) payment. Exactly. There must be some relationship, you know, between uh, you having, you know, taken this career direction into birth and your uh, decision that you wanted to become a single parent.
1: Well, um, Yeah, I hadn't, I had just assumed I would have a child as part of a relationship. And I was in a lesbian relationship at that time. And we were looking for a sperm donor, but then the relationship ended. And the real important thing that I learned during my midwifery training, especially the nurse midwifery part of it is how unprepared most people are to have children. And so I think most upper-class, well-educated white women in their late 20s would think, oh, I'm not yet ready to have a child you know, financially or emotionally or relationship wise, but having seen who was actually having children for those previous three or four years, I realized I wasn't at least as good a shape on all those counts as most people. So I I went ahead and did it. And that was, that was (laughs) probably the best decision I made in my life.
0: It was certainly a courageous one. Uh, it didn't,
1: it it didn't feel that way. It didn't feel courageous. Really. It just, uh, it was just what I most wanted to do. And I was very afraid of infertility. I had, wow. I, I had not ever had regular periods. I had rarely had fertile periods. And I knew so many women in their late 30s and 40s who were dealing with uh, heartbreaking fertility issues. And so I was, I was par- partly out of fear. I mean, I, I just figured at 28 was my best shot to get pregnant if I ever was going to be able to. And so I,
0: I wanted to try then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go through the exercise. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, so you and I were in correspondence for most of our twenties. Not so much through direct uh, letters, although I think we spoke on the phone. But we also wrote for a uh, a zine together. Uh, were you? Doing uh, other writing in your twenties? Were you in writing groups or? or no, what was and
1: your and writing I, life and, like then? Yeah, looking back on that, I mean, I really see collection that that experience writing for that zine that that you invited me to and supported me in so much. Um, that was the first prose writing I ever did on a consistent basis, other than you know assignments in college. Huh, and I remember. Um, you know, in the midst of that, when it was all going so well, we'd be so excited to mail off our, you know, uh, manual typewriter written things or handwritten
0: things. It's such a remarkable analog throwback. You know, <laughs> yeah, it, to to, uh,
1: mail them I, off to the person who was going to Xerox them and mail them back but out. But I still have our...
0: mine, you know. Yeah,
1: <laughs> me too, me too. But I started thinking, oh, someday I, maybe I would want to write a newspaper column or something. And I, and I realized like, oh, I have things to say that don't fit in poems. And, um, and that was such a treat, especially, and the dialogue, you know, I mean, we had some things to say on our own, but mostly we were responding to what each other had said. And that was thrilling.
0: But what you're saying underneath is that you were writing poetry.
1: Yeah, I was, I was always writing since I was six years old, I've been writing poetry and, and through my twenties, mostly I had to land in a poetry class or a workshop during a lot of that time I wasn't but at least once or twice a year some poem would just squeeze through and I would have to write it
0: so is it uh, a feeling that you rush to try to manifest the
1: poems like yeah I would I mean they're scribbled on envelopes and um, you know tire warranties from the glove compartment yeah
0: that's how it is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd like to hear more about, you know, uh, your journeys in the healthcare industry. So, how did you get from, you know, the sort of the birth business into hospice care?
1: Well, I I really want to thank a woman named June Whitson. She was British-born and was a midwife in California. She was involved with the home birth movement and supporting lay midwives. But she might have been a nurse midwife herself. But I went to this you know, home birth midwife, very hippie-ish conference at an ashram outside of Santa Cruz. And she gave a little talk on the connection between hospice work and midwifery work. And she talked about the handywoman tradition in like colonial America, or maybe even in England, that the women who attended births were the ones who also did the laying out of the dead. And she was dealing with breast cancer herself. She actually died uh, only a few years after that, I believe. And her husband had died uh, not too long before that. And so she said, I mean, I was just sitting in a large group of young women listening to her, but she was basically telling us to keep our eye out for hospice work and that there might be a role for us. And then um, a few months later, At my home health agency, they asked for a volunteer to do hospice night calls, So I raised my hand because she had told me to.
0: So professionally, then it it didn't seem like that hard a step.
1: Well, it was interesting. um, Going from my intended career as a home birth midwife to then a home death midwife, basically, It gets back to that theme of working against the institution or within the institution. It just so happened at that time, you know, 1996, um, Medicare had established the hospice Medicare benefit, um, you know, within the previous 10 years. And so Medicare was paying us to support people in home death and instead of worrying about liability, you know, cause in home birth midwifery or any midwifery, we're worried about the baby dying. We're worried about the mother dying. And in hospice, the person is supposed to die. So it's just this tremendous relief. And right, what could go wrong? And our success rate was like really high, you know? Um <laughs> and and we're getting paid by Medicare to do this. And instead of like being on call, you know, living like a nun, like the home birth midwives do, being on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, 300 and some days a year, um, I was part of a large institution. So I took call, you know, I did night call for seven days and then I was off for seven days. So I had time to myself to take care of myself during my pregnancy, which I'd seen a lot of midwives not be able to do. And then I was able to take leave and I got disability uh, when my son was born and, you know, I, well, I ended up taking a year off. And again, I don't see a lot of midwives don't have that luxury. So it was kind of ironic by switching from birth to death. I was able to take care of myself through my own birth of my
0: son. Well, good. Otherwise might not have, might not have gotten the signal. And (laughs) I mean, how about, the way you connected to the work emotionally or, you know?
1: Well, and there I do have to credit. Um, it's actually the the lead home birth midwife that I trained with. Her name is Div Karen Kalsa. And I've recently uh, reunited with her and got to visit her in Austin. If you need a place to stay in Austin, the Park Lane guest house is the place you want to stay. And that's where Dave, Karen, and her par- partner, not Shakti, yet a
0: sponsor of when humanists attack
1: <laughs> Dave Karen and Shakti run it. And it's amazing. Um, bed and breakfast, like you wouldn't believe, but anyway, I, I feel that I'm still apprenticing to Dave, Karen, even though it's, you know, 30 years later, um, she was the home birth midwife who practiced in the way that I dreamed somebody could do and was so, uh, kind and gentle and also, you know. But forceful with me as an apprentice and what I needed to learn. And then um, when I left Connecticut, uh, she moved to Austin around that time and trained in the Avatar work. Harry Palmer was the founder of it. And it was mm. kind of similar to Est or Forum. You know, it's this intensive work looking at your own belief structures. And um I got a lot of training in being present. It was like kind of like almost a way to do Buddhism without having to sit. On a mountaintop and meditate or whatever, which later I ended up doing. But, mm-hmm. but I was trained to be present with myself and other people. And so that first night on call with hospice, I'd had forty-five minutes of training from my supervisor. This is what you do at a death. I showed up knowing nothing with my little checklist on my little steno pa- pocket pad, and I kept having to call the other uh, phone nurse on call to ask her what to do. But the family was so. Uh, appreciative. They kept saying, we couldn't have handled this without you. And the only thing I really brought to that was that I was present. I was present with them and myself. I was present in my own lack of knowledge about the situation. And I was present with them as they didn't know what to do either. And so um, that was a great gift because so often when we're working, we're in situations that we have knowledge about. And so we think it's our knowledge that is what's valuable. And I'm not saying knowledge can't be valuable, but that first night doing hospice call, knowing nothing except how to be present was a great, um, feedback for me in, in the value of that training I'd had through the avatar work.
0: That's a beautiful story. You know, it, it, it was the right skill. It was enough.
1: It was all that was needed and it was exactly what was needed.
0: Yeah. And and I'm guessing it may also have helped, uh, your ability to sort of, uh, have takeaways yourself from from all these encounters with Ooh. nine people and family
1: that's interesting yeah i guess you're right there's some reflectiveness built in in that avatar work we're looking at how our beliefs create our reality so you're right we spend a lot of time observing our beliefs and observing our reality which i wouldn't have done before thanks for pointing that out
0: I'll pop in just to point out that this podcast is produced by The Humanist Being, a social change organization classified by the IRS as a religious nonprofit. We're on the web at thehumanistbeing.org, and we've got two groups on Meetup in Burlington, Vermont, and Brooklyn, New York. Joining either group gives you access to our Zoom based street epistemology practice group, the Impossible Conversations Club among other humanistic events, both online and on the material plane. If you're just joining us, this is When Humanists Attack. My name is Roger Kimball-Smith, and I have the delight of interviewing Barbara West, uh, a writer and nurse across the lifespan. And, you know, my idea for interviewing you is that, you know, your range of experience nursing from birth to death, up close with both of those and the rest of your life experience, you know, that you develop some wisdom about <laughs> the body and the life cycle and the stages. And, and those are the sorts of things that you know are typically the province of religions with their rites of passage, but secular people desperately need that wisdom too. And, you know, and who else but the handy woman to <laughs> possess it, you know?
1: Oh, thank you, Roger. Thank you. And and I just I just have to say. Um, I, again, I'm appreciating the title of this show and I just want to say when humanists attack,
0: <laughs> but that's I the idea, read... that's why there's three exclamation points.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want to read this little quote from Eunice Emory.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's excerpted from the drop that became the sea lyric poems by Eunice Emory, E-M-R-E, who I don't know hardly anything about. Um, But it says, we entered the house of realization. We witnessed the body, the whirling skies, the many layered earth, the 70,000 veils we found in the body, the night and the day, the planets, the words inscribed in the holy tablets. Truth is wherever you want it. We found it all within the body yep and I, I don't know I don't like I say. I don't know really anything about that except it just like popped up on my computer screen one day <laughs> when I needed it and so I, I put it in the forward to my book you know to remind myself more than anything else
0: well you know I mean we you don't need to reach far to find related <laughs> ideas in your words
1: <laughs> well and the, and the thing is I perpetually wonder why I'm working with the body rather than saving the world. And, and this, I come back to this quote as my, um, what's the word for it? Like the thing that lets you off the hook, Your the thing that
0: you're (laughs) um, alibi (laughs) alibi. Yes, yes,
1: yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: As if you need one, (laughs) Uh, you know, I mean, uh, the, uh, the relationship between the body and the self, you know, is probably closer than any of the other, uh, you know, sort of dimensions of selfhood we've we've set up the Hindus, you know, said that thou art, the, you know, body and the world. Uh, I know is a, a metaphor richly used by many.
1: And I think, you know, you point out that I've worked in birth and death and I think, maybe that's very convenient you know because those are two moments where it's it's real obvious that we're embodied or f- fail to be embodied or whatever and so i i i've i've been aware that those two moments of birth and death draw one into the present especially like home birth and home death there's a sense of like we are all right here in this moment and um i mean i think that's why we watch you know football games and basketball games, or there's a lot of, there's, you know, those are times where everyone is focused on that moment. And instead of doing that, I've attended births and deaths. Um, but yeah, when we get down to this moment, then we are, we, we find ourselves in a body.
0: I mean, those are the rites of passage. You know, they're, they're the only two that are noted on a gravestone, for example, you know, the, those mm-hmm. are the times when there's negotiation between life and and you know, what is what is not human life.
1: Yeah. And I guess, I mean, I don't want to violate any uh when humanists attack rules, but you know, if if we talk about body and spirit, those are the points of connection and disconnection possibly you know, between the two. And and so uh whether there's anything before or after we come in or out of the world, that the details of that don't concern me, but it's fun to um to feel
0: the mystery of that. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's the presence of that. That's what's mm-hmm. that's what's going on. And, uh, and it's, and, you know, there's an authority around it. There's a realness. Oh.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I know there are uh, at least two other major uh, influences on your life that we haven't really discussed yet. And one you mentioned was Buddhism and meditation and the other is 12-step recovery groups. Maybe let's yeah. address these either together or one at a time.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I say, I, I, I often say, I feel I I'm, I'm living my life at the intersection of like Buddhism, Buddhism, Christianity, and 12-step work. And, and the shorthand for that is Buddhism and Christianity tend to tell me to help other people. And my 12-step work tells me to, focus on myself and stop bothering everybody else. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) But really, isn't, I mean, well, maybe you're supposed to bother, you're supposed to bother the higher powers, right? Isn't that how the 12 step step In 12
1: step, well, the higher power doesn't get bothered by us. That's the the nice thing. But you have to
0: admit you need the help.
1: (laughs) Right, right. And and, and that's the thing. It's just, um, you know, from a humanist point of view, um, you all might appreciate the work of Kevin Griffin. Who's an amazing Buddhist teacher, but he he tackles the higher power issue from the point of view of being in a non-theistic religion, and, yeah. and how do you do twelve step work in that context? And mm-hmm. what it comes down to, as he so graciously says, is like it doesn't really matter who, what it is that's helping, as long as it's you realize it's not you. Like you you can't do it on your own, you know, and that we don't have enough spiritual bootstraps to pull ourselves up on. Um, but it, it, it doesn't have to be any kind of supernatural God. You know, I, I come around a lot to the concept of prayer. I pray a lot, uh, praise prayers that I've memorized, but in the end, um, I always felt awkward as a Buddhist doing all these kind of more traditional Judeo-Christian prayers. But in the end, it's just that I'm asking for help. I'm admitting I need help in any way. And that's, that's a spiritual act, I think
0: yeah i mean uh, like the thing maybe can be uh, both yourself and not yourself but you're not doing it separately there's no separate self right that makes it conversant mm-hmm. with that that rubric you know?
1: yeah i mean and maybe because you're right like when the separation I play, is
0: the big western you know uh, right. Buggabu, right
1: right and so maybe when we say like we're asking for help we're getting down to fundamentally I don't know, just admitting we don't know, you know, maybe that's even the, the core nugget within there. And, and, and I guess the most important thing to not know is that we don't know what's going to happen next. And that's, that's (laughs) in Buddhism, we call that groundlessness and Hmm. I've come across it. I came across it in Mennonite church services this uh, last couple of months during Lent, they called Uh it wilderness, wilderness, Mm wilderness.
0: A kind of wilderness of of the mind space
1: well or the wilderness of not knowing what's going to come next and fully giving yourself to that mm-hmm. so i don't know what the humanist uh translation for that is but, um, <laughs> but i'm sure there is one
0: i'm getting it it's there i mean so i guess this takes us to barbara at midlife and the way you've portrayed it to me is that a long way you know, sometime in your forties, I guess you kind of got back to writing you, you know you found that you had a lot that you were now burning to say, and this writer identity erupted
1: yeah. Yeah, let me uh, actually I can tell you exactly how that happened so you know whenever I've been in a poetry workshop or had writing assignments of some kind, I could do them and I would enjoy them by and large, but left to my own devices I just like turn up with a poem or two a year. But what happened was my mother, who is not a fan of poetry, had on her dining room table, where I was sitting to try to do my taxes, one February, an announcement that a friend of hers was gonna be giving a poetry reading at the Unitarian Church. And I was like, mom, we gotta go. Carlina's doing a reading. This is Carlina White, who's an amazing, amazing poet. And mom's like, well, I don't like poetry, so I'm not gonna go. I was like, well, I have to go then. So I went to this poetry reading I knew there was going to be an open mic afterwards. So I brought some little eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper trembling in my hands. And I went to this reading that was amazing. I had thought I was too old to get back to seriously writing poetry. And most people that were there were 20, 30, 40, 50 years older than me. So I was in my 40s. And these people were a lot in their 70s, 80s, 90s. And one guy was over 100 they were incredible poets. And that's also the sexiest poetry reading I've ever been to uh, that series. Like they just it's hot, like they know how to write. And so I started showing up every month uh, with a piece of paper shaking in my hands. And so that gave me a clue that I needed to do something about this writing thing. And, that, and that's goodness. so I'm grateful to that. That that we know sex sells, going. but
0: I didn't know that sex sells poetry. <laughs> <You
1: know. laughs> Apparently it does, or at least it, it makes you show up with a trembling piece of paper, at least.
0: Wow. All right. And so then, I,
1: so then I started going to poetry readings and then I started getting invited to feature. And then, you know, there happened to be a publisher, the piece of paper shaking in your hands. There's something you want to share
0: you've always been comfortable with performing as long as I've known you. So I'm sure it was a natural step for you to become very, a very dynamic kind of performance poet.
1: I love to perform and in an upper-class white, wealthy poetry context, my performance poetry kind of made a splash, you know, in a different <laughs> context, um, you know, there's plenty of people that are awesome at that. But I was one of the few people that was not holding a piece of paper in front of their face and staring down at it, you know? Um,
0: I see, you were a, a little freer than your average pink feel. Well, and, and basically
1: I memorized my poems, you know? And I, it's so fun to look at an audience when you're performing, and a lot of um, the poets in these circles don't know that. But um, so that's been interesting to me to me these last couple years. I kind of know how to deliver a poem with my body and my voice. Right, But now learning how to make it deliver on the paper without my body and voice is a whole new skill that I've had to learn.
0: Without the body and voice. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that suggests maybe something about your process. I mean, I mean certainly, uh, literally, I guess you're saying that the creation and the delivery of the poem are, are, are separate acts. Yeah, but it's
1: maybe not. I mean maybe before I was always writing like how I speak and then mm. now that I'm you know writing stuff that's unperformable I mean maybe simply because of its length I'm having to learn like how to use punctuation and like phrases and like how to have mm. tension in my writing which I was able to maintain I mean for one poems are shorter so you don't have as much a uh, need to pull an audience through but but i'm having to learn to make the words on the page communicate what my body and voice used to help the words do
0: well before we get to that i'm getting antsy to hear one of these one of these works (laughs) Okay,
1: (laughs) okay okay let's see i um this one i wrote a few years back but um i'm fond of it so let's see Well, actually, I'm just gonna read this one first. It's short. It's called Silver Badge, and it Mm -hmm. kind of gets back to like nonviolent communication and Marshall Rosenberg. How,
0: oh yeah, even when we
1: mean well and we're actually we are humanists and we're actually not attacking for a a single moment, it's maybe hard for other people to believe that.
0: Right, we're that little puppet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's the giraffes and the jackals, and you could (laughs) we could might be interpreted the wrong way. So we think Silver Badge. Let me polish my silver badge so you will know it is really me. Like how once upon a time, the Wild West Sheriff was always the good guy. Except this talisman, this calling card of the divine, free of tarnish from my human failings, the five silver points arrowing out into space, defining a plane of benevolence. So that I no longer have to lie face down on the kitchen floor at your feet to prove I mean no harm. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of right. doing so, doing no harm—that's what they say in medicine: "Oh, do no harm." But that's right. like that's easy to do. I mean. When have you lived a day without doing harm, you know? I mean, gardening ah. is like the most violent thing. You're killing all these little worms and <laughs> like putting a shovel in the ground and you might be using herbicides or throwing slugs to the chickens.
0: Right, I, I well, you know, I mean, I think the concept of Ahimsa uh, and the, uh, you know, and whatever it was that Hippocrates was learning, <laughs> different different contexts. Yeah. Tell me,
1: tell me more about Ahimsa. I know I've come across it, but I need to be reminded.
0: Oh, I mean, I mean, I think that's the idea. The the Hindu concept of do no harm is, you know, to anything sentient.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's, that's too much for us. If I pull groups. that off
1: on any day, let me know. Um, right.
0: But well, the trickier thing is to admit the harm you're doing that, you know, <laughs> You know, <laughs> I'll, what I'll most of that. us don't want to do.
1: I'll, I'll take that. Let me, I'm going to take that as a win that and may I admit the harm I do every day. Like I, I, I'm i going to, I like that prayer. I'm writing that down. Oh dear. May I admit right. the now, harm now I, now I'm I,
0: authoring it. prayers on the fly.
1: <laughs> may I admit the harm I daily do <laughs> and see, I'm asking for help because I know I need help with that. Okay. Now I, I'm going to read this. Speaking of doing no harm, this is um, I wrote this when I was on retreat at a, it's actually a A tree farm that is like a Buddhist retreat place, privately owned by this wonderful couple. They do Buddhist retreats and some music retreats, but they were letting me go there to do uh, writing retreats in this little cabin. Mm. It's a working tree farm in Mendocino County. What sustainability sounds like. What sustainability sounds like. The opposite of raping the landscape isn't not to touch it. It's being part of it stepping into your role as predator, harvester or prey as the case may be. Our tools have evolved from digging stick and rush woven basket to chainsaw and extended cab pickup. At the moment we don't have the luxury of a team of well-trained Clydesdales. The sound of chainsaws in the distance Trees dropping is the sound of nature unfolding. This is what sustainability sounds like. Financial, physical, environmental, emotional. This is the sound of Dharma. What is. There are some places designated for pristine, where humans role is strictly to walk single file on needle springing paths smile up and wonder, then visit the state house to remind those in power. But this is not one of those. It's here because it can pay its keep with tree trunks going out, people coming in, writing, meditating, singing, crying as the case may be. There's no guarantee another fire won't consume it, as tends to happen once or twice a century. But we prefer not So we're voting for not with our tiny human votes. A fire extinguisher in the cabin, a glass on the shrine shelf for used matches, checking the barn kitchen stove for all dials turned up to off, clearing underbrush. Lightning may strike, rats may chew into a hot wire. This place may need to burn, if so, That will be our path. Meanwhile, we all keep voting for what, as my sponsor says, seems to us to be the good. Stretching our understanding of that as wide as we can, the way a woman stretches to give birth, or rather, the way she is stretched by the emerging head. Another tree falls away from the blade with an earth-shaking thud. The whoop of the chainsaw-wielding man reassures you he survived this one, too. That's
0: fabulous. <laughs> I, mean, I I had two thoughts while hearing that. Uh, you know, One was that uh, it certainly sounded like uh, a piece of California <laughs> poetry from the last <laughs> 18 or 24 months.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think I wrote it five years ago, but yeah, it's it, where... Actually, yeah, it was before the fires started burning, but the fires were just the history there of the land. I saw the old stumps from 70 years ago that had been Mm.
0: burned. Yeah. And the other and the other association was with uh, a a pair of words that we tossed about between us 30 years ago, non-dual ecology.
1: (laughs) Well, and that's where I have to say you saved my life. Um, What? I mean, because that really that I mean. I mean you know, I mean, we never save a life. We're only prolonging it really, but because we're all okay. going to still die eventually. But
0: well, 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 our, our idea of the good is that it's it continue. Yeah, <laughs> I
1: like being alive and I'm fond of being alive today. And, um, and until you sent me Non-Dual Ecology by John McClellan from Tricycle and I, I carry copies of it with me. I have multiple, multiple copies since I'm prone to losing things. I pass them out to people. I even did a workshop on it at church camp. Oh wow! It, it's the first one that told me that my idea of the good may not be the cosmic eternal good and it's okay for me to fight for my idea of the good but I don't have to be angry about it and I can learn to act not out of rage. Um, and, and that, you know, if we annihilate ourselves as a species that may not be the worst thing for the cosmos, you know, and I, I had just never um, had that much room before. And it was, I think the first thing I ever read that gave me permission to just work on being happy.
0: So there it is again, some slack and some permission.
1: It gave me slack. Yeah. Yeah, because I could.
0: Roger's gift to Barbara, there for the record. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, thanks, Roger. <laughs> yeah, you, you Xeroxed it out for all of us in that zine. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, I just had it had never occurred to me that I didn't have to be in a rage every day, and I didn't have to be terrified every day about what was going to happen to myself and everybody else, most particularly everybody else. I could actually just relax in the fear of being terrified about what's going to happen to me, and that was that's a huge relief right there.
0: Well, from some of the hints that you've given this basic question about, you know, yourself and everybody else is at the heart of the the writing that you're doing now, right? You've described yeah. the project on your website as a memoir of recovery from codependency,
1: uh-huh. both yeah. personal
0: and familial.
1: Oh, right, right. Yes. Yeah. So we, our job as a family was to save the world. I mean, it still is. And and thanks to Non-Dual Ecology by John McClellan, mailed to me in the mail by Roger Smith, I, I came to entertain the idea that it wasn't necessarily my job to save the world. And, um, and so I'm working on that. Um, very particularly right now, I'm reading every letter that my father ever wrote me. And hmm. my father um, was working to he went into his work uh, as a China scholar to in hopes of ending the Cold War and and healing wounds of war in hopes of preventing future wars um, focusing on the Korean War in particular the last decade or so of his life and mm. there's there's some difficult letters in there as you alluded to in college there was a time when I was completely rejected by my father and didn't know if I would ever see him again and that actually repeated itself a couple times later in, in my life and um, so it's interesting now that it's actually a relief to go ahead and just read all these things he wrote, reread them, um, Oh wow! realize that I don't have to feel guilty for the things I hadn't read earlier. And just my father actually had a fair amount of insight into his own pain and, and the things that caused him to lash out, even if he couldn't control it, he writes about it pretty eloquently and he's a historian. And so, you know, he's reminding me why it's worth it to dig around um, and look at the
0: painful things. What was she rejecting in you?
1: Um, I mean, fundamentally that I hurt him, that who I was hurt, who he was. And, and that's a theme that played out in his life with many different people and has to do with my parents' divorce, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but, um, you know, I'm learning as I get older, when, when someone has been hurt by the majority of people in their lives, it it may not be that it was my fault as a young child. And it may be that, um, it may be that I was good when I was a child. And even when I was a teenager, and even when I was in my twenties, that, that possibility is rearing its head here. (laughs) Um, so, (laughs) and I can see, uh, how much my father also saw that and spoke to that so um, it's interesting to have him now as an ally in this project
0: yes at last yeah it sounds like a real full circle uh harvest for you
1: yeah and 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 people dying can often be helpful in these kinds of conversations and and we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of his death so um i'm making progress in that relationship you know partly thanks to those events
0: but And so, you know, the, the substance of that as it plays out, you know, has to do with this other phrase that you wrote to summarize the writing you're doing, having been raised to save the world, she learns to save herself.
1: <laughs> yeah. And again, and what save means, um, you know, we don't really know because we're going to have a non-dual approach to that, but, but we're at least learning to, you know, cherish the self or be gentle towards the self or not punish the self not punish myself and that's um that's kind of exciting
0: yeah that gets gets you out from under some uh some punitive styles some punitive legacies
1: legacy is a really good word and and i think and when you're job and your family's job is to save the world it makes sense that you would be failing to measure up you know over 300 years or more and then and it also helps like you know i guess as a result of all this different work i'm learning to find friends who don't punish me you know and and connect with family members who don't punish me or or um avoid punishing situations you know and that that really helps you uh, let go of the self-punishing habit
0: yeah got something else to read on this kind of theme let's
1: see let's see let's see let's see let's see all right let's let's try this flinging pork chop this is also written at the uh, from the same uh retreat center uh, out in the on the tree farm in Mendocino county flinging pork chop taking a break from the cabin it's lunchtime anyway eating leftover pork chop in the old metal chair on the pond dock The pond is teeming with life more than I even thought. Bullfrog tadpoles float everywhere, catch sun in the shallows until my footfalls wiggle them off. They settle again mid-pond, belly resting on a reed like no-necked gymnasts on a horizontal bar poised for the next twirl. Mosquito fish are swarming from a hulky inch and a half down to one so tiny that even when they furiously lash their tails, their forward progress remains laughable. I think about throwing in a piece of my pork chop, a tiny, tiny little shred. I think of the pork oil contaminating the water. I think of delicate ecosystem balances and how humans so often unwittingly tilt them toward disaster. How we learned years later that the stale bread Grandma West saved for us to feed the ducks turned to cement in their bellies. But then I think of all the crazy stuff that might just happen to fall into the pond anyway, so I tear a bit of my my pork chop off the bone and throw. The mosquito fish are on it. The shred of meat is like a massive beach ball in a new games class, but this is no new game. They are dead set on winning. They've pulled it into two pieces now, the battle now raging on two fronts the biggest mosquito fish with the biggest piece is leaping out of the water heavy prize in its mouth others maintain hot pursuit until all are lost from my sight that was fun i think about doing it again i think about the ecosystem and how artificial inputs fall stimulate population growth so that when the external stimulus is withdrawn, surplus populations wither in famine. Disease weakens the strength of the original herd. I think about how one of the fish could get hurt in the fray, how hungry dogs fighting over a bone come away wounded. But I'm bored and I'm lonely. I toss in another bit, results as satisfying as previous I think about other things that might fall in the water. They wouldn't stand a chance against these micro piranhas. Then I see the body of a small electric blue dragonfly floating past the dock, surprisingly dry as if it just fell in. Why aren't the fish after it? Too bad it's already dead. My lust for blood sport rising up from primal depths of my being, from sometime before 300 years ago when my family became pacifists. Maybe that's why we needed a religion that strict. Were we extra bloodthirsty to begin with? If the dragonfly would wiggle a bit, those fish would be all over it. Then it does. The fish don't miss a beat. They have it surrounded on all sides, pulling on it as if it were a piece of pork chop. The melee floats sideways across a dry reed on the surface. The dragonfly gets traction and lifts its wings in the air in a last ditched attempt to save its own life. The fish leap at its feet like angry dogs, jerking it into the lethal wet, that dark place where creatures of the air have no advantage, where the minnow hounds of hell reign in savage discord. I wonder how different I am than the guys who put down money on razor spur roosters or those who breed pit bulls for fighting. My contempt for those who are vulgar, ordinary is being dismantled bit by bit, carried off like so much pork chop. I see now that we all want a front row seat on the horror and glory of death. Apparently it's part of what makes me able to drive into work every day and why the rest of my family members watch movies, sports, or politics, a week in a solitary cabin would put any of us into withdrawal. Then someone, God perhaps has mercy on my soul and the whole messy fray drifts under the deck out of sight. I'm contentedly heavy enough leftover pork chop in my lap to not get up and lean my head over the edge. I still have my limits, apparently.
0: Oh, wow. Barbara West, flinging pork chop.
1: <laughs> thank you, Roger. It's, it's fun to do these out loud. I don't think I've really ever read them out to anybody. So
0: thank Oh, you, well, I mean, you sent that one to me and I read it, but I didn't hear in my own head, you know, uh, the, the that sports casting passage or two. <laughs> that really sold it
1: (laughs) that's the thing i I do say on my facebook profile color commentary in general i think it's a phrase jed came up with but i do i do see myself as color commentary yeah (laughs) Yeah.
0: right well and i'm secretly still a game show host
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's what's going on here where's my prize
0: oh uh, barbara west what a uh what a richness there is in, uh, in our conversation and in your world and in your work. Mm. Thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, Roger. And thanks for um, helping me remember, like, what the heck am I doing here anyway? It's just amazing to get this kind of, kind of support over this many decades. And, and also, when I say support from you, I don't just mean like the personal support, but it soothes me knowing that, that somebody is keeping track, someone's watching um, the media someone is um is writing about that you know and speaking about that so and and hosting these conversations so thank you so much
0: and a little postscript the conversation you just heard occurred in 2022 in mid-2023 barbara announced that she was shelving the memoir she'd been writing and joining a new 12-step program workaholics anonymous this time At present, she's still nursing and teaching swimming lessons at the city pool in Corvallis, Oregon, and practicing her pole dancing, but perhaps most intensively, she's working very hard at not working very hard. Our theme music is Pod Men from Sector 7 by Eric Bode. This is Roger Kimmel-Smith reminding you to stay alert, skeptical, rational, and loving, for you can't predict when humanists attack.